Hello, I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, can we as individuals make a difference in the fight against climate change or does all the power lie with governments and big business? We are today perilously close to tipping points that once passed will send global temperatures spiralling catastrophically higher. Climate change is the biggest threat to security that modern humans have ever faced. We all know just how serious and just how urgent the climate crisis is. And, given the scale of the problem, it is little wonder that climate anxiety is at an all-time high, particularly among young people. It is definitely extremely scary, like, not knowing in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, do I want to even have kids? Do I want to bring people into this world? We're told that eating less meat or boarding fewer planes are ways we can make a positive change. But given that a relatively small number of fossil fuel producers are responsible for the vast majority of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, just how much does the power of one really matter? Number one, really important, it's not an either-or. The the big emissions reductions still have to be made by governments, uh, by big corporates. There, I will never. That's always going to be number one. We need systemic change. Environmental scientist Dr Tara Shine has worked as an international climate change negotiator and advisor to governments. I guess what I found um, from years of being an advisor to governments and political leaders is that sometimes they wanted to make bold change, but they didn't feel that they had the support of the voters or the businesses in their constituencies to do so. And so what I found was that even in advising on the best possible things to do, there was still this gap, this this intention gap and this sense that, oh, but it's not yet what the public are ready for. So what I know there is that we need to grow the conversation on sustainability so that it is something that everybody feels part of, not just the people who feel they're green and woke and all that, but that it's something actually for every single person so that um, political leaders don't feel afraid to put in place the policies that are needed to change the whole system. Because we have nine years in which to change the whole system, fundamentally to half emissions um, of, of dangerous carbon pollution into the atmosphere, but also to start to restore the biodiversity we need because it absorbs and stores all that carbon and helps to keep us safe. So if we're going to do that, this has to be a conversation for everybody. So yes, you have power. The power is in the conversations you have the talking that you do with people, the changes that you make, but then the changes, how you talk about those changes and reframing this whole conversation away from being who needs to do it to everybody needs to do it and what's my role. Another thing that is very prevalent now is is this notion of climate anxiety. And when you look around and, and you see what's happening with the climate crisis, it's really hard not to feel despondent or hopeless. Is it difficult to keep fighting? Are you ever overwhelmed by the, just the enormity of the task that is facing the planet and the huge responsibility we have to do massive things to make the world a better or even just to make the world a livable place in the years ahead? So I don't lose hope, but that's because I'm doing something about it every single day. Right. So I'm not paralysed. I'm not stuck. Um, I'm also pretty cross about uh, the fe- the lack of leadership by my generation and the generations that went before me. And I'm ashamed, really, that 75% of our children and young people feel the future is frightening. 
So that's just not good enough. I, I refuse to be a failure as a parent, as a citizen of the world, as a grown up. So, uh, no, I'm not going to get despondent and I'm not going give, to give up because there's too much to fight for here. Is fight for even the right word? This is not a war. This is no comparison to the war. This is human beings as a civilized society working together to make things, yes, safe and livable and better for themselves and for their children and their grandchildren. And if that can't be an incentive to do things differently, I don't know what we need. In the end of the day, we this is about looking after human beings. The planet will be fine without us. It'll be grand. It'll, it'll probably be better off because we're the only hum- species that's actively destroying the basic systems that it needs to function. So don't sit back and feel like you can't have any part in this. You can, even if that is just talking to your kids about it and addressing the anxiety that they have. Let's just talk about it more. It's one of the most fundamental things we can do. So what does individual action look like? We spoke to two people taking matters into their own hands. Hi, my name is Kate Devitt. I'm 14 years old. I live in Dublin and I'm a climate activist with Fridays for Future Dublin. I've been involved in environmental campaigning in some way, shape or form for probably about two years. I started off with my school's Green Schools Committee and then when lockdown hit about 18 months ago, a lot of the organising would move online and it's a lot easier to join meetings from your bedroom than have to take a long trek out. So through there, I joined uh, SCAN, which is the Student Climate Action Network, and then more recently, Fridays for Future Dublin, Ireland. So Fridays for Future was started in 2018 when Gareth Thunberg striked outside the Swedish Parliament building demanding climate action from her government. I sat myself down on the ground outside the Swedish Parliament. I school striked for the climate. And her starting this movement inspired young people all over the world and in Ireland to found Fridays for Future Ireland and Fridays for Future Dublin. If this point, you've got no idea why we're striking. Then, like, what on earth? You must be utter idiots. Seeing the real effects of climate change on the news and learning about them in school, um, it's really infuriating to see and it creates what we would kind of call an eco-anxiety and I guess the only way that I knew to deal with that was to get involved, to try and make a difference and here we are, I guess, a few years later. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet... You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? How much of an inspiration has Greta Thunberg been to you? I think Greta Thunberg has been such an inspiration to myself and thousands of other young people. Like hearing her speak and reading her books and like seeing what she's doing and her starting the movement as one girl outside the Swedish parliament and seeing how much it's grown in the past few years to millions of students striking on the street streets is such an incredible thing to see and it's brought the climate crisis to the front of people's minds and I think that really shows that you can do anything and I think that's such an incredible inspiring message. And how do you encourage other people, people your own age, to get involved in issues around the climate crisis? Because I'm sure they've got a whole lot of other things going on in the world from exams and studying and socialising. How do you get people to care about climate change? Well, I think really with people my age, it's not a matter of interest, but kind of how to get involved more than the interest because we learn about it in school and we see it on the news and it's more of a where to start. And it can be really daunting to kind of think, where where am we supposed to start? So like I would say just to get involved, 
there's so many organizations like Fridays for Future, which you can reach on Twitter, on Instagram, through emails. Also, just joining a strike. There is like small regular strikes every week, but especially now coming up, we have the global strike on October 22nd in Dublin. And you can contact your local groups to kind of get involved with that. But I would say youth climate activism sphere, if you will, is such a welcoming group. Just get involved. Everyone has to start somewhere. And I would say just jump in and get started and amazing things will happen. How do you think the people in charge, and when I say the people in charge, I kind of mean the adults. How do you think the adults in our world have dealt with the climate crisis so far? And do you ever get angry or frustrated that we have allowed things to get this bad? Yeah, definitely. I think angry and frustrated would be two words that come up a lot. And I think the science is clear more now more than ever, especially with the IPCC report that came out in August, that it is us that has caused the climate crisis. And then we really only have the next five to 10 years to kind of do something about it. And again and again, we see people in power and global leaders putting their own vested interest and profit and money over the health of our planet and our people. And the phrase that comes up a lot in the climate activism is there is no planet B. We need to kind of cop on and see that this is a crisis and we know what to do. We know there's a crisis. They just need to act on it now. Do you look at the future and does it make you scared? Do you worry about what the world might be like in 2050? Oh yeah, 100%. Like we see all these statistics of climate refugees and the terrible natural disasters that we're already seeing. And it is it is definitely extremely scary. Like not knowing in 10 years time, 20 years time, do I want to even have kids? Do I want to bring people into this world? So I would definitely think myself and millions of other children all over the world are seeing that we are incredibly scared and we're at this point begging for action because it's our world and it's our future that we're fighting for and it's very frustrating to see. If you had one message to give to the leaders of Ireland, Michal Martin, Leo Varadkar, Eamon Ryan, about the environment, what would you say to them? If they were sitting here with us now, what would you ask them to do? I would say listen to the science and care about our future and the young people of Ireland who are inheriting this world. Listen and do what you need to do. Catherine Cleary is an Irish Times columnist and former restaurant critic. In 2020, she co-founded Pocket Forests with her friend Ash Conrad-Jones with the goal of improving biodiversity in urban areas. A pocket forest is a smart, dense, preferably urban planting of native trees and shrubs. It can be as small as a single car parking space or as large as half a tennis court. I visited their urban nursery at the Digital Hub in Dublin 8. So we're in the Digital Hub in the middle of Dublin city centre uh, and we're surrounded by these little pocket forests. And Catherine, they're your brainchild. Can you tell us a little bit about pocket forests and why you did it? I went down a rabbit hole with trees, partly because of writing about food and soil and, and figuring that maybe I'd go to the other end of the tube rather than sitting in restaurants eating the beautiful results of it. Um, and then during our 2K lockdown with my friend and co-founder, Ash Conrad-Jones, she came across this idea of a tiny forest model, which had been developed over a series of long number of years. We looked at it, we talked to the experts who were bringing it into Europe, we looked at the costs of what they were doing and we thought, I think we can do a smaller, lower cost, more community involved version of that and that's how Pocket Forest evolved. The Digital Hub were wonderful back in March when we were all 
all still on Zoom and I could never get off mute. <laughs> Catherine, you're on mute. We said, can we have a tree nursery in the digital hub? And they said, yeah, why not? Let's do this. So we, we put it into containers. We've got uh, six or seven of our native species here. A little blackboard telling people what they are. Actually, we have to get a little name tags on them as well so people can see them a bit more close up. And these trees are going to go out into our projects around the city and the country. At the risk of asking a question that might offend you, what's the point of this? Like, is, is it to educate kids? Is it to make something pretty for people to look at? Or is there something, and I use the phrase advisedly, more substantial behind the idea? It's all of those things. It's beautiful. It's educational. It's also empowering because we try and involve people in schools or in communities in making these forests. So we, we do a big soil preparation stage at this time of the year. We use a lot of urban waste, coffee grinds, food waste, uh, cardboard, things that people generally throw away to get the soil ready. And then we plant the trees in bare roots. So it's, it's so many things. And for us, it's been a really powerful, almost therapy for us at a, at a really frightening time. So, Catherine, as you said, we're in Dublin 8 and it's not an urban wasteland, but there is certainly a lot of empty spaces, derelict spaces. Is this the kind of space that you could use to create these uh, pocket forests in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many hard surfaces which are a problem because with our downpour rain events that we're getting now, we're flooding our wastewater treatment with rain. The other thing that these forests do is that they allow the water to go into the ground where it can be dealt with much more slowly. Yeah, it's a perfect model for this part of the city where, you know, eyesore places, places that are just sitting there, we can put these in. People can be involved in putting them in as well so they feel an ownership and it's not just something that somebody else does. Um, you know, they, they, often it's said that these trees are too small and they're going to be vandalised. And, you know, we've never, we haven't found that to be the case. Nobody's vandalised these trees. They're, they're part of, of what people like to see. So, yeah, we'd love to a pocket forest on every street in Dublin, not just Dublin 8. Not just Dublin, surely. Not just Dublin, any town and city. I mean, the great thing is with the, with our latest round of funding, we're going to be able to trial a tree pack. So we've gone to uh, various sites to prepare the ground with people to explain what's going to happen when the tree comes and we're going to send them a tree pack. So that's potentially a product that people could buy for their gardens and they can do them themselves in the same way that we kind of embraced the meal kit and became we all became chefs. You know, I'm hoping we can all become foresters as well in a way. The other fascinating element is that you're creating an ecosystem rather than just planting a tree. Um, there's no such thing as a lone tree in nature. A lone tree will always seed itself and create other trees and, and become a forest. So we're starting with the forest rather than as a lone tree. And obviously we're surrounded by cars and buses and factories and all that stuff pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Is there any possibility that these little pocket forests could act as a carbon sink or could draw in at least some of the carbon dioxide that we're producing? Yeah, I mean, tree experts will tell you that young trees don't sequester carbon. But actually, the thing that people are realising now is that a lot of the sequestering is being done by the soil as well as the trees. So we think even just by regenerating a small pocket of soil and putting in these trees, it's definitely going to sequester some carbon. It's not a carbon sequestering solution. You know, it's not, you can't say, oh, I've got a pocket forest, I'll offset my, my round-the-world trip. You know, that it doesn't work like that. It's It's definitely more on the biodiversity side of things because of bringing it into this part of the city. But I think there's something uh, very interesting about the combination of soil, 
uh, a multi-species forest um, because unfortunately what we have so much of in Ireland is a monoculture forest which isn't a forest, it's a plantation but that soil and multi-species forest it's doing everything good I mean it's, it's alleviating uh, heat in a city once the trees get bigger it's allowing for the flood water that we're going to get more of to co- go into the ground more safely and without damaging things you know people say oh trees, roots, damage things they, <laughs> they absolutely don't and I think it's also allowing people to see that a forest is not necessarily a Sitka spruce, dark, horrible place. And then that can feed out into the farms and the the places where we can do this at bigger scale and we can properly sequester carbon with forest planting as opposed to tree planting. And what's the reaction been like, both from the, the people who've been involved in the project and the wider communities? People who get it really get it. We had a school teacher in, or a school principal in Balbriggan who got some funding to do our small garden forest, which was 11 trees and shrubs. And she got, uh, through a very kind nursery uh, guy, she got 500 trees and then another 100 trees spare. So we ended up planting 600 trees in a bottom of a field in Balbriggan. Um, she was saying that the kids in the school who may not be big fans of school actually love the day is it the day where we're going to work on the forest so they're going to do a while a pollinator area now and they're going to do a vegetable garden so it's kick-started this fantastic project and of course mark twain famously said by land they're not making it anymore and that's a reflection of how precious land is and when you're in an urban center like dublin the land is even more precious have you found any difficulties or any roadblocks in your way acquiring even small little pockets of land for your forests? Like, have the authorities been happy to say, oh yeah, use that little piece of land, we're not using it? Or do they say, we might be using it at some point in the future? Uh, Yes, we've found enormous difficulties. I mean, people ask us what we need and we say land and money, you know, (laughs) we need land and money. And they're all in very short supply for this kind of thing. There's also a wonderful movement of volunteer tree planting. So when we rock up and say, well, we would like this to be a social enterprise, we would like to train people, we'd like to have green jobs made from this, that's also a battle. We're still pushing on that door but I think the more we do the more we can show that we've done the more that we can show we've partnered with uh, the Department of Agriculture where we're partnering at the moment we're partnering with Quilta Nature because they're looking at bringing more, much more native woodlands into the city with the Dublin Mountains project and, and this is going to be a little echo of that project I think we will win over the hearts and minds of people eventually you know eventually we're not going to have to have cars parked outside our houses hopefully so there's enormous openings for a reimagined city and what it's going to look like and what's going to be there instead of all the cars that are 95% of the time not doing anything other than costing us money outside our homes. And all over the world, that massive understanding that came from COVID as to the mental health benefits of being in outdoor spaces, being around plants, we may not even believe that they help us, but they do. So I think any progressive local authority can't look at this project and say it's not going to fit because it's it's tiny in in many ways and it's perfect i think coming up why cop 26 is so important and why the changes needed to halt the climate crisis shouldn't be viewed as sacrifices Tara, you've been working in this space for more than 20 years as an environmental scientist and a climate change negotiator. In that time, you've seen the climate crisis just get worse. We've never had a year when things are better than they were the previous year. You've seen waves of public interest come and go. You've seen big talk from governments and from corporations or to quote Greta Thunberg, you've seen a lot of blah, blah, blah. With COP26 coming in just a few weeks time. Do you think we're at a different point in our history right now? 
First of all, isn't it funny when you point out all of the failures that people like me have had? So I did a a really excruciating stand-up comedy for Bright Club on this, where I spoke about the fact that I'm one of the biggest failures in the world because the thing I've worked on for over 25 years has got worse with every year that I've worked on it. And yeah, I've gone to COPs and we've made breakthroughs at most of those COPs, these um, annual climate summits. But yeah, we haven't we haven't fundamentally shifted things. We haven't even really started to solve the problem. We have put the Paris Agreement in place, and that is like the common legal framework that we're all now working to. But for the Paris Agreement to work, we have to come back every five years, review progress that we've made towards the goals that we set, particularly to keeping the levels of warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial limits. And we need, they need to say, and now what more do we need to do? And how are we going to sign up for that? And what new commitments are we going to make? So this COP26 in Glasgow is important because it's the first time since Paris that all the countries come back to the table and they say, I am going to do more to get closer to that goal. So what we know is right now we're on course for possibly up to three degrees of warming above what the temperatures were in the 1800s. It may not sound like a lot, three degrees, but it fundamentally disrupts the weather that we have, it causes sea level rise. It basically means a whole lot of bad news. So we have to do a whole lot more than we've even contemplated doing up until now. So the leaders have to come to this COP and say what more they're going to do to reduce their emissions, because that's the most important thing. But they also have to come to the table and say how they're going to work in the spirit of global solidarity to help the developing world and the most vulnerable countries to make this transition away from fossil fuels just as fast as we're planning to do in Ireland. And that means money. So the other thing you're going to hear a lot about from this COP is going to be our developed countries bringing the money to the table to help this transition to be a fair, equitable and global transition around every economy in the world to a greener future. Money is an interesting word there because a lot of the time it does come down to money. It also comes down to will. Do you think the political will is there for real change? Do you think we, the public, are willing to make the sacrifices that we have to make for real change? I mean, we all pay lip service to environmental concerns and to wanting to do right by the planet. But do you think when push comes to shove, we really are prepared to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice to make this a better world? So I think wanting to change, wanting change and wanting to change are two different things. So we all want change, but we all have very entrenched habits and we quite often don't want to actually make that change. Politically and even personally, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think it's interesting that you use the word sacrifice several times in asking the question, because I don't think this is about sacrifice. I think many of the things we need to do are good for us right now. They're going to make us healthier. Like, why do we stand for 1,300 people a year dying prematurely in Ireland from air pollution? Why why are we not cross about that? You know, why do we stand for it that uh, our kids walk through dirty air to get to school? Why do we stand for having overpackaged food in our shops? So, A lot of these things aren't sacrifices. They're about making things better. And the long-term benefits happen to be that we'll make a safer climate for us all to live in. So no, I don't think we have quite connected the dots that this is not about protecting the planet. It's about complete self-interest. It's about looking after ourselves. It's about making our own lives better. Yes, by looking after the natural systems that we need in order to survive. So we can't live without a natural world that gives us food, water, air. So we have to we have to look after it so that it can look after us, but also so ultimately we can look after ourselves. If that penny can start to drop, then I think the urgency 
that we will feel as individuals will power more urgent responses by our political leaders. I think you've touched on something really interesting there because maybe the message does need to change. Like maybe the message that we're told that we need to change and we need to do this and we need to do that and we need to make these sacrifices. Maybe we should just be told that if we do A, B and C, our lives will be immeasurably better. And a byproduct of that is that we will be destroying the planet significantly less. I mean, is that, is that what we need to do? Yeah. So we talk about this all the time in Change by Degrees. We need to lead with the social message about what's in it for you as an individual. And the ben- the co-benefit is for the environment. If we sell this as something that's for the planetary system, people don't care enough about that. It doesn't feel personal enough to me. But if I say to you, if you, if you drive your car less, it means your children are exposed to less air pollution right? That means they're going to live longer, healthier lives. It's more interesting. If I tell you that, look, if you just once a week, you walk the kids to school, you're all going to be in better mood because 20 minutes in the fresh air every day improves your mental health and improves your mood. It's going to make you a nicer mother, father, workmate. That's an immediate reason to do something for yourself, which happens to have a co-benefit in terms of nitrous oxide and particulate matter and carbon dioxide emissions but which really you don't care about those things because they're not they're not tangible to you but what is tangible to you is how you feel that day think about the immediate personal benefits of these things and then the environment benefit is the co-benefit and if we could start to reframe the conversation in this way i think we'd get to the point of people wanting to make change habit changes because we have ingrained habits that we need to change but some of the new habits are better and will make us feel better and they'll be better for us that's at the heart of my book how to save your planet one object at a time is this whole notion of of changing habits around everyday things so that we're all part of this bigger conversation that drives the change that's it for today thanks to dr tara shine Catherine cleary and kate devitt You can find all our climate-related coverage in the lead-up to COP26 on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.